Hello and welcome to the Past and Present podcast. Join me and my co-host Rosie as we journey through history one story at a time. Today we're talking about food and drink in the early Stuart era, a period that starts in 1603, goes all the way through the English Civil War, right through the Restoration period. Rosie, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, it's been a little while since we've recorded, hasn't it? It really has, yeah. And, and some of it's on us, but most of it we'll blame on technology. Yeah, I mean, a laptop dying on you is a good excuse not to have to record, isn't it? Um, but luckily, we're back up and running now. So uh, we've got a few more episodes left of the series. Um, and this one, I feel it's going to be quite an interesting one. It's a very different part of English history, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely a, for me, a period of history that sits between periods. Um, sorry to any, you know, Stuart fans out there, but for me, it sits between the Tudors, which is everybody's favourite, and then the British Empire, which happened sort of, what, 100 years after this period. It sits in that middle ground. But either way, it's a bit of a, it's a troublesome period. It's full of um, conflict. It's full of um, some pretty exciting things. but. Um, why don't you start with giving us a bit of a brief overview of the period and then we'll get straight into it and start talking about what people are eating. Yeah, so the Stuart period, um, as you said, starts in 1603. So it starts with uh, James I of England and James he's James VI of Scotland. Um, so he took over after Elizabeth because she didn't have any children. Um, as most people know, Charles I, uh, who came after him, was executed, and there was the English Civil War, which obviously led to his execution, and we had Oliver Cromwell, and this period was known as the Intergem. I might have said that completely wrong. Um, and, yeah, and then after Oliver Cromwell, it kind of, uh, I think his son took over, and then they were like, actually, no, we're not a fan of this, so they brought back the king, um, King Charles II, so... It was a very kind of up and down period of English history. Um, and I mean, you might be surprised to know, but the food and the drink stayed quite similar at the start of this uh, Stuart period. So uh, they were mostly eating what they were eating during the later part of the Tudor period, um, which, I mean, isn't really surprising because there probably wasn't much of a gap for people to start finding new things in the kind of, you know, however quick it takes to appoint a new monarch. So, um, but the one thing about the Stuart period is that food was improving for the ordinary person and also the rich, which I think is something that we hadn't seen in the Tudor episode or previous that we'd looked at before. Yeah, it definitely seemed like prior to this point, there was a definite gulf in the two I don't want to say two classes because it wasn't a class-based system at this point but the two the two of the three estates let's say what they were eating was very very different um but would you say in this period that it starts to blend a little bit or is that is that too wishful thinking so as we kind of get further into the Stuart period it definitely gets more I guess blend isn't the right word because as much as ordinary people had more access to different foods the rich then had access to even more food. So the rich are still getting more lavish and ridiculous. Um, 
I saw an example that they had pastries that were made into the shapes of like grand buildings and stuff like that. And then they would sometimes have them like explode and stuff. So I saw this story about a pastry stag head, which had an arrow sticking into it. And um, suddenly like the cook come, came in and uh, lit the gunpowder that was there and the stag exploded and loads of claret poured out of it. So it looked like blood. And if that doesn't sum up how ridiculous the rich were, then that, you know, what does? Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't think people fully understand how mental food was up until very recently in this country. Um, it's actually something I was looking into, like the common trope that British food is really bland. Like, I don't think anyone can get away from that fact that it's very, very, like we spent 200 years raiding the world for spices and then refused to use them. Um, it, it kind of comes from this, that people were using, the rich and powerful were using so much, so much of this exotic stuff and literally setting things on fire and making them explode because they had so much money and time. Um, but eventually it, it fell out of favour and blander food, not blander food, but more pure for, for food in its kind of original state became more popular. And that's why food these days, especially in Britain and, and to a lesser degree France, the the higher class food that you would go to, you know, Michelin star restaurant, it's quite boring, for lack of a better word. Um, so we've gone from one extreme to the other, from expl exploding stag heads full, filled with wine to um, steak and potatoes. Um, which I guess without the context is quite strange, but as I'm sure we will do in later episodes, we will go through the the changes that followed this period where we stopped going like absolutely insane with like spiced peacock filled with the dolphin and stuff like that to pretty food that we would that we would recognise today. Um, so we we very very briefly touched on um, the food that kind of starts this period off you've mentioned that it's very very similar to um the tudor period which i guess like you said makes sense um but the bit right slap bang in the middle of the 17th century um and slap bang in the middle of this episode is the english civil war which saw like you said oliver cromwell and the rest of parliament um remove the monarchy completely um and completely change the way england was governed it was a republic for, what, 11 years, I think it was. The interregnum was 11 years. Um, and, yeah, so I'm assuming, and you might prove me wrong here, that food changed quite drastically because Cromwell has this reputation of being a very, very puritanical bloke. Um, obviously, that might be a little bit of a trope these days. But, yeah, what, what was it like in the civil, during the Civil War? So during the Civil War, I actually found a kind of, in a book, a record about, what the official ration was for a cavalier, which the cavaliers were the king's men. Yeah. I, I, mean, I don't know what I was I... doing for those <laughs> that are not watching this video. I think I was trying to make a crown. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So for the cavalier soldier, the official ration was two pounds of bread, one pound of meat, and two bottles of beer. I didn't have a reference of how long this lasted them. Um, but that is apparently what they were given, I guess, while they were out fighting. Um, and it was actually quite interesting to kind of read about how they ate 
during the Civil War. I mean, there wasn't much about ordinary people, um, apart from the fact that if, um, basically, if they, if the, you know, the soldiers came a knocking, you basically had to give them food. Um, and I'm not really sure why, but basically, um, they, yeah, basically, if they came to you, you had to, um, it's, it's kind of like pillaging in a way, they kind of would come and knock on you and be like, give me your food or bad things are going to happen. So I guess that's why they kind of went along with it. Um, but it was actually interesting to kind of read the stats of like, how much it kind of affected the ordinary person, the fact like, so the soldiers would come and take your food um, and actually they were like, oh, we, we owe you, like it was an IOU and they really never paid it back. So they would come and take your food and they'd be like, yeah, we owe you, we'll pay you back. And um, it said in Cheshire that £120,000 worth of free stuff was never reimbursed. Um, and they lost a lot of like livestock and goods in the plunder, even though technically it was legit. Um, and it, that was quite interesting to read because you kind of don't think like, how did they get their food? Because obviously they were on the move quite a lot. It's not like in kind of medieval warfare where you might stay in a castle and you barricade your stuff inside with all the food that you can find. Um, it's very much like, oh, we're moving to another area now because the roundheads are over here and we need to go get them. Um, so it's quite interesting. Um, and I read another story that in Taunton in 1644, the roundheads were really hungry. So they stopped chasing the king's army and went in search of food. Uh, they found themselves unguarded and the king's army counterattacked and killed, killed all of them. So... <laughs> Uh, hunger was definitely a thing um, because when they weren't in their strongholds they had to basically go plundering, scavenging um, and finding food um, and I found another record of uh, kind of how much food they ate in one place so there was 200 roundheads situated at Chalfield House in Wiltshire and apparently they ate four, I think it's four thousand pounds of beef 1600 pounds of bacon 580 pounds of pork 1900 pounds of mutton 64 pounds of veal and then they also ate 15,000 pints of wheat 27,000 pints of oat 20,000 malt 5 5,000 5, beans and 5,000 peas so you think that is a lot of food. That's a lot of beans. <laughs> That's an obscene amount of food. But you're right. Like, I, I think it, it's really easy for us to look at warfare, you know, let's say the English Civil War, and not, not make it about food. But, you know, as we know, as people that eat, you know, food's a really important part of your normal day when you just go out to work or whatever. You still got to eat. Um, but if you're marching, you know, 20, 30 miles a day, fighting for you know say eight you know you know a normal battle could last eight 12 hours 
Um, you know, that doesn't, you know, including the skirmishes, the, the kind of cleanup phase afterwards, like you could be on your feet for three, four, five days without sleep. Food becomes a really, really important part of your day. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting just to hear the, the, like, the sheer numbers in terms of what people were eating in the field. Um, so obviously the, the English Civil War ends in the, uh, I, yeah, I always say it ends in 1649 with the death of, of Charles I. Um, some people have it ending a little bit before, some people say it carries on a little bit. Um, but either way, after the Civil War, we, like I said, we have Cromwell as the definitely not king, but definitely in charge of everything. Um, 100% not the king, but definitely basically the king. Um, his his rule um, was, was kind of, is kind of earmarked by Puritanism and a return to, to simple life, you know, famously apparently bans Christmas and everything like that. Um, what was food like? after the civil war so i guess food didn't like directly change but one you didn't have the uh fear that the uh soldiers would come knocking and take all your livestock and all your food so that's always a positive um but i would say that the way food was consumed and like you know created like for it was not as lavish like you wouldn't have a pastry stag head during this time this was a very simple time of food it would have been very no lavish parties or you know big feasting um obviously as Oliver Cromwell was a Puritan um they're very strict like they didn't they I think it's like you're not allowed to sin so kind of lavish displays of wealth weren't really them um and there is also like this urban myth that Oliver Cromwell banned mince pies at Christmas. Um, and everyone says like, oh, mince pies are still banned. I actually couldn't find any proof that he actually did ban mince pies specifically. Um, but I did find kind of a source that said like, so he did ban Christmas as in you couldn't go to a dedicated Christmas service at a church. Um, so, and it wasn't like, a special so like parliament was still open on christmas day um work still continued as usual so it wasn't a holiday in the regard of how we would treat christmas now or how christmas would have been treated as like a religious day it was just an ordinary day um so he did ban these church services and there was also kind of um anyone found with food intended for a christmas feast would have the food taken away from them so in a way he kind of banned mince pies in terms of if you were caught with some mince pies pie. you might have got them <laughs> taken away but it wasn't specifically like he wrote in parliament I am banning mince pies like that's not what happened it kind of sounds like Christmas in the UK last year was it last year or the year <laughs> before when you were like you could have Christmas but only on your own and you couldn't go to anyone then you could go to someone then you couldn't like it's like we're not banning Christmas but we're pretty much banning Christmas yeah, like that was the vibe he was uh, giving out. Um, I guess the other thing about kind of um, Cromwell, like food under Cromwell. Um, so poaching was something that went on quite a lot before Cromwell was in power, although it was 
punished. It wasn't punished as like harshly as kind of maybe in the Tudor period or before. Um, but during his reign, um, he executed, or uh, executed as definitely exterminated, um, hundreds of deer because most of them had belonged to the cavaliers. Um, so all the poachers didn't have this extra supply of meat because he'd like exterminated loads. So a, a lot of families in those areas then who were poor, who relied on poaching, did struggle for food. Um, and yeah, so there's that kind of one. And then also in the 1650s, the you know, new stuff was coming to the market, such as uh, coffee. So, I mean, I can't imagine coffee being a drink that the Puritans would enjoy, but apparently they thought it helped cure coughs, cold, gout and scurvy. So it was more a me medicinal thing. I mean, black coffee to me is kind of puritanical anyway, because it's void of like anything nice, but it's like, well, it's hot <laughs> and it'll keep you awake for a bit. So I, I can kind of see why why Oliver Cromwell and his mates would, would, would like coffee. But yeah, it's uh, yeah interesting. So we've talked about the earliest Stuart period with James I and Charles I. We've spoke about the Civil War. We spoke about the Interregnum. Uh, obviously, that ends in 1660 when Richard Cromwell is politely, probably not very politely, asked to stop being Lord Protector. Uh, and they get Charles I's eldest son, Charles II, uh, to come back. And he's known as the Merry Monarch, isn't he? He's known slightly different to how, I guess, the, the Puritans that were doing the job of running the country for the for the previous decade. So I'm assuming, again, lots of assumptions in this episode, that food did change quite drastically with Charles II. But you might tell me, nope, it's exactly the same. Well, <laughs> uh, it, it did change slightly, Yay. not like drastically. Um, as you said, Charles was the merry monarch. He loved, he's basically the opposite of Oliver Cromwell. He loved partying ladies feasting like Charles II is well known for literally having like 12 illegitimate children he didn't have any legitimate children but you know 12 illegitimate ones like he was just a you know he was just completely the opposite of Cromwell um so obviously he brought back you know feasting partying um back I mean it's interesting when I was talking about the exploding pastries before there's a cookbook from 1670s and the cook was complaining in it that they hadn't brought back enough garden powder into their dinner parties. Um, so it's amazing. He didn't bring exploding stag heads back, but he did bring back uh, big feasts and the lavish lifestyle. Um, one thing that he kind of made really popular was the pineapple so the pineapple I think came to Britain uh in the 15th century um but there was a painting done with King Charles II and he's being handed a pineapple um so the pineapple was known at this time as the king pine um and they became like hugely expensive they were worth up to like 
I think it was an American source. So I think it was like up to $8,000 in today's money just to buy pineapple because everyone wanted them because they thought they were like royal. Um, and they wouldn't be eaten. They'd just be put on tables as like centerpieces just to be looked at and like admired and be like, I'm so rich. Look at me. I've got a pineapple on my table. Um, so that's one thing that he made like really popular um in his reign um and obviously with the expansion of not the empire because obviously the empire didn't exist but with the expansion of going over seas lots of new things were being brought in so for like most people including I mean I guess the rich were eating the best because of the opening up of the country, um, you know, spices were coming in, um, new exotic fruits, um, stuff like that. Um, obviously, your ordinary person was probably still eating the same standard foods, but a lot of them had more access, I guess, in terms of things being cheaper and easier to get. Um, obviously all dependent on the harvest but they seem to be eating more food than they would have been you know 60 70 years previous yeah so th th this period of history is always as i mentioned in the intro i always feel like it sits between the two periods of history that people kind of know when it comes to british history which is medieval history and then this you know the the period of of white white wigs, everybody being called George and big naval battles and red coats. Like, I feel like this period sits in every aspect. Of, you know, even even with food, it sits in these in this period between what we what we know. Um, so I, I always find it quite interesting to to look at it as a period. Um, I also really enjoyed the pineapple thing. It's kind of like my go to fact. You know, when people don't really want to know, but I'll tell them anyway. Um, it's that people used to rent pineapples because they were so expensive that they well, they needed one at their dinner party, obviously, because um, you're not going to win ye oldie come dine with me without a, a you know a pineapple on the middle of your table. Um, I had some pineapple for my lunch today at work, and it was definitely not eight thousand dollars, but it was nice because I like pineapple. <laughs> I think it's 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 an underappreciated fruit, as Charles II would probably agree. I mean, I literally have like quite a few pineapple homeware items, which sounds really weird, but like pineapple lights. So Charles II would obviously love me, which wouldn't be a good thing because we know what he's like. Um, but yeah, I do find it interesting kind of what they thought was, you know, worth money um, when realistically, I think pineapples were just so expensive as well because they didn't know how to grow them in the UK. Um, it wasn't until I think the 18th century that someone worked out of like how to make a greenhouse and then they were able to grow pineapple. Um, so it's quite interesting um, to kind of read about pineapples. They're actually quite interesting, um, which is, you know, strange because um, they're not interesting these days. Um, I mean, so I was kind of reading about different uh parts of like how in so the UK was very agricultural like England was very um and everywhere like loads of places had their own specialities so like 
Hampshire Honey, Derby Ale, Warwickshire Ram, um, Tewkesbury Mustard. So like everywhere had kind of their thing that they were like um, famous for, which I think, you know, we kind of still have a little bit of that today, like in farm shops and stuff, like people kind of making their own speciality for the area that's like different to somewhere else. So I thought that was um, quite interesting. And then obviously for the restoration period, one of the best sources that we have to talk about, well, I mean, the whole restoration period is obviously Samuel Pepys' diary. Um, he talks about everything. Um, and he also mentions food in his diary. So um, if you go online, I think it's called like Pepys' diary. Um, someone's kind of uploaded all the entries and they've like categorized them. So you can search for if he talked about something. So you can search like chicken and then it will come up every time that he said chicken or like chocolate, like has this been mentioned? And I think I saw the chocolate one and I think it was just a note from the editor saying like chocolate wasn't introduced until 1952. Peeps didn't write about it until this time and stuff. So like, it's quite interesting um, to look at that source because he literally wrote about kind of everything. Um, I mean, whether he knew it was going to be useful to us, I don't know. But he kind of, everything that could have happened in his life, I think he wrote down. I mean, yeah, I always wondered about things like that. Do people write them with the intention of them being still used hundreds of years later? Or is it just pure coincidence and someone's going to find my Instagram in a thousand years time and be like, oh, I'm so glad that Chris did all of this stuff. Um, because this is helping us, you know, understand the 21st century. And if they do, they're not going to get any kind of looking on the 21st century. So let's hope um, that we have some more information to go on. But yeah, I think it's um, it's uh, yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting, strange period of history. I don't think anyone could argue against that. Um, we see it outside of food as well, like with the introduction of a professional army. Um, you know, we have the new model army that's introduced during the Civil War. It's the first army to wear red, which becomes a famous colour, um, obviously, with, with the British Army and the, the Empire troops later wearing that famously in places like India and the United States. Um, but I feel like everything was kind of on the cusp of being brand new, but also really old at the same time. And I think food, as we've seen through this whole series, um, has been a great vehicle for change um, and showing us that as much as things do change, we also still really like bread. I think that's going to be the overall theme for me from this thing is that bread is king. Yeah, definitely. I mean, bread is still consumed in their, in their masses. Like, obviously, now, I think, like we were saying before, like, white bread was the pinnacle of being rich. It's not really the case anymore. Um, but I do think, like, for the Stuart period, like, this definitely was, like the pinnacle of like absolute change because more people were able to afford to eat meat like every day or at least two or three times a week which wasn't accessible to people before they were eating different kind of foods so I think the potato was coming in at this time which obviously became a staple which for Ireland was not a positive change but for <laughs> everywhere else um was something that kind of became a real English staple. I mean, to say that 
potatoes don't come from England just seems weird because we do everything potato like chips, crisps, anything you can make with a potato, we've we've made it. Um, so it's weird that that is not traditionally English. Um, and obviously, stuff like the turkey was coming over from uh, America in the colonies there, um, which we didn't have. Um, and obviously, now that's like a really famous food for Christmas. Um, it's just like a really interesting period because I do think that, like you said, it was kind of on the cusp of like being completely different, um, not just for rich people, but for ordinary people as well. Like they did have more access to nice food and not just kind of scraping by with some bread and whatever they could have, like even kind of cheeses and stuff was a staple that they relied on which I don't think was as popular kind of maybe like 200 years before because they didn't couldn't get the milk or whatever. Um, so I think like it's definitely an interesting period to kind of study um, just to see the difference because I feel like potentially when we go into the Georgian period, which is our next area, maybe we will see like actually it's kind of levelling up I mean, I'm sure the rich will still be going ridiculously hard <laughs> trying to make weird things, but I think maybe the ordinary person might have more access to stuff. Maybe. Or maybe it just goes completely the other way and everyone has worse food than the Stuart period. I don't know. I guess we will find out in the next episode, which will hopefully be recorded and... Um distributed for lack of a better word relatively soon after this one hopefully no more technical issues uh, but yeah i think that is a great place to wrap up if you've enjoyed this episode of the past and present podcast for more make sure to follow us on instagram at past and present media and at twitter on past present m thank you <laughs>